Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that puts a magnifying glass to the role of cars and transport in our society and ends up burning a hole in it. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including the 10th anniversary of the Nissan Leaf in Australia. Kia launches the next generation of their Nero small SUV with hybrid and electric options. And Hyundai's next electric vehicle will take a different approach to its exterior and interior design. In our feature story, we take the launch of Kia's new Nero small SUV a little further with details on what the car has to offer. We road test the Jeep Wrangler Rubicon, made for the toughest of situations, but we also test what it's like on bitumen roads, chalk and cheese. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. So let's get going now. Let's have the news. June 2022 saw the 10th anniversary of the launch of the Nissan All-Electric Leaf in Australia, two years after it was first launched in overseas markets. In total, they have sold about 2,000 models in this country. Given that they have sold some 600,000 models around the world in the same period, it is a reflection of how relatively slow Australians, and particularly their governments, have been to accept, adjust and promote the need for more sustainable travel. This is not just an issue for global warming, but also for local pollution and the immediate negative health impacts that internal combustion engines cause. Nissan points out that Australian Nissan Leafs have saved approximately 93 million kilograms of tailpipe CO2 emissions. It would take in excess of 422,000 trees, roughly 10 years to store that amount of CO2 and... Australian-delivered Leafs have collectively driven the same distance as travelling to the moon and back 76 times. In relative terms, these are not large numbers, but the value of the Leaf has been in pioneering an all-electric vehicle in this country and being very early in providing bi-directional charging, the ability to use your car battery to run appliances, say on a camping trip, or even run your house for a number of days. Providing power back to the grid is still discussed as a benefit of these vehicles, but this has become less of an issue compared to personal, practical uses. Nissan also helped establish and develop relationships with Australian suppliers of support facilities such as charging stations. Some companies have created advanced products that have achieved excellent overseas sales where government policies are more proactive. It's companies like these that are adding to the commercialisation of services that facilitate behaviour change, such as charging stations in shopping centres. This is all part of not only changing the vehicle in which we travel, but changing, in a positive direction, the way we live. Kia has just released the second generation of their Nero small SUV. This is the second small SUV they have, the other is the Seltos, but the Nero is their push to electrification, with two variants, a hybrid and a full electric vehicle. Unlike the first generation Nero, they have, at this stage, decided not to import a plug-in hybrid variant because the market has not responded to any great degree in buying them. 
A plug-in hybrid, in many ways, is the better arrangement for those who wish to use the vehicle mainly in the city on electric power, but still wish to have a petrol system capable of doing a long trip with many opportunities to quickly fill up the gasoline fuel tank. The Nero is the first Kia model in Australia to get Kia Connect, a smartphone app that allows users to connect with their vehicles remotely. Kia Connect is available as standard on both the hybrid and the electric vehicle top-spec GT lines in the Nero, and from now on all new Kia models, even those with only a simple makeover, will have the system. Kia envisages expanding the system in the foreseeable future with features such as wireless updates. When Hyundai launched their Ionic 5 medium-size all-electric SUV, it was a distinctive design that used relatively straight design lines to give a hot hatch appearance to aid in maximising the functional space inside the vehicle. That sounds like it might be a box on wheels, but Hyundai has made a good-looking vehicle and it is selling very well. Now the Korean company has just shown its next electric vehicle, the Ionic 6, which is nothing like the 5. They call it a streamliner design with a, quote, single curved aerodynamic profile, unquote. It's very sedan-like, which from the side, the bonnet, roof and boot profile arches from the front to the back like the shape of a bridge. The more recent common trend to have a squinty look for headlights at the front has been shunned in this case, evoking to my mind the look of the front of the mid-70s Chevy Monza, as long as you put a perspect-type covering over the Monza dual headlights, as they did on circuit racing vehicles. The rear of the vehicle has a certain boat tail look. It has a stunningly low coefficient of drag at just 0.21, reducing the air drag significantly. Their description of the vehicle at this stage is high on buzzwords. For example, the interior is described as being, quote, an uncomfortable hideaway and personal space, replete with practical features and sustainable materials to facilitate a mindful, eco-friendly mobility experience and lifestyle, unquote. We are working on translations at the moment. And that has been the news. Time to talk about a few cars. We won't go into great detail, but we'll just touch on uh, some impressions of driving. And to do that, we have our good friend, Evan Jones, who's on the line now. G'day, Evan. Hey, David. How are you going? Evan, let's just talk about another vehicle. Perhaps the last time was a Peugeot 3008. This time is the Jeep Wrangler Rubicon. You got in and drove it down a motorway. What was your first impressions? That a Matt truck probably handled better <laughs> and certainly would have more feeling in the steering. Yeah. In the straight line, yeah, it's got a bit of grunt, but trying to keep it in a straight line is another story. It wandered all over the road. I even had a comment given to me by people associated with the vehicle who said, yes, it's a bit of a boat. Mm. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's being unkind boats. But anyway, uh, for balance, the interior um, lights up like the Starship Enterprise. And it actually doesn't take too long to work out what button does what. Most of your buttons are um, on the screen, but they're all there. You don't have to go searching through layers of uh, menu to find what you need. 
Uh, you just got to have pretty good eyes to look at the thousands of buttons that are on there. But uh, that was okay. That was good. Um, uh, the air conditioning work. Um, but the handling and the, the brakes were off putting too. So you're slowing down towards a set of lights or whatever. And it's as if you're using engine braking as well because it's a three litre V6. But as you are slowing down, suddenly it's as if, the if, it, if it had a clutch, it's a it's as if it releases and suddenly you're freewheeling and you've got to actually put a – your reaction to that is put the brakes on harder. That's off-putting. Now, I don't know if that was because of that particular car or if it's a feature of that model, but that was off-putting. You like a good handling car. There's no question of that. I found that going down a motorway felt like a 1950s American large sedan that uh, it tended to wallow, as you say, using your expression, I think, quite rightly. It was a yank tank in its feel yes. down that motorway. And any motorway with a speed up to, say, 100, 110 was not its natural environment. Now, I also found that I did the, the noise inside from the tyres because this is really made for off-road. It is the, the pinnacle of off-road capability. And I took it yes. off-road and I didn't push the limit. I don't see a need to prove my manhood. If I came to a big puddle, I found the, what, the, the least resistance way around it rather than booming through and splashing mud everywhere. So, you know, it, that's its environment. But on the motorway, it's a yank tank and the noise. Did you find the noise from the tyres travelling at 80 to 100 a bit uh, distressing? I found the stereo was quite good. <laughs> You're dead right. Um, so my my answer to that was to find Triple M and turn up the rock and roll. But yes, yeah, the noise, the tyres, you can see they were built for off road, and putting them on on bitumen is a really big compromise. I found that 80k was worse than 100 to my mind. But maybe that you know, there you just react to various drumming noises. Yes depends on the people in that but a colleague of mine not, lives not far away has an old Land Rover Defender and his uh, natural equipment for a long trip is earplugs and yeah. to some degree I think this would reflect that I would not like to drive it a long distance in a touring sense but I can tell you um, once I got on the dirt road it just felt at home you know, yeah, the steering again what was still sort of floaty in a way. You know, the, when you steer the wheel and then get a reaction to the tyres, it, it, but when it was on that dirt road, it, it felt fine. And it meant that you could travel on that dirt road, you could travel on that dirt road and feel that you weren't worried about the car. I wasn't trying to push the limit, but the bumps mm -hmm. weren't something that instilled fear in me. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, we've spoken to our colleague, Evan Jones, who has owned many a sports car, some Lotuses and other things, and he enjoys that. When we put him in the Jeep Wrangler Rubicon, it was a little bit of a cultural shift. It is a vehicle, or is it a vehicle that's really made for the off-road situation? Well, the best way to find that out is talk to an expert in that particular environment. And on the line is our good friend Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au. G'day, Rob. 
David, how are you? Uh, well, I've had the vehicle off-road, and I thought it was pretty good, the Wrangler. Uh, how would you define it? Is that its natural environment? The, the Wrangler, particularly in Rubicon version, is a vehicle that is designed purely for off-road work. Now, mm. Driving freeway and the highway is more a temporary inconvenience to get to where it wants to be. <laughs> a temporary inconvenience, yes. I, I think that's a perfect summation of it. I felt it was a bit like a yank tank in the feeling. It sort of wallowed and, you know, the steering wasn't made for precision but uh, when I got it onto the dirt road, it was certainly made to feel comfortable in that environment. What's the difference with the Wrangler between the Rubicon? I think they have the Nighthawk and the Overland. Uh, 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 is the Rubicon the toughest version of those? Well, the, the Rubicon has a number of features, again, that are aimed purely at off-road driving. For example, you've got front and rear diff locks. Mm. Uh, You've got a, what they call a sway bar disconnect. Now, the sway bars are used to try and make sure that, you know, you, you stay, you don't roll over and your car stays stable on the road. But what it does, it limits the wheel articulation as well. So in the Rubicon, you can actually off-road, you can disconnect those. So you get greater wheel travel. The benefit of that is you keep your wheel on the track, you know, through potholes and over rocks and that type of stuff. It's got little things, you know, underneath it's got a hell of a lot of armour plating, I like to call it. You know, it's got rock rails and steel bumpers and it's got a very, very heavy-duty transfer case with a 4.1 ratio, like, which means you can go low, low range. Now, this thing is designed to travel the Rubicon Trail in the States, which is possibly one of the hardest trails that you can actually drive on. Mm. So this is its target market. Does everyone yep. buy one of these because for that reason? Or they, it does come, the one I had, bright red paint, and it had the decals down the side of Rubicon and trail uh, determined or something, or a trail set or something. And, 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 of course, it was very much with the mud guard sticking out the side in that image of the old Jeep. Do people buy it for that image or for the reality of going off-road? Look, I think as far as I can make out, there's two types of people that buy Jeeps. Uh, one are those that like the Jeep image and, you know, they'll often buy the three-door because you can take the roof off and that type of stuff and they want to go four-wheel driving. And, and the normal Jeep Wrangler will go a lot of places. But people that buy the Rubicon really buy it because they're going to go and be adventurous. They're going to go further off-road than 95 98% of the people would do. If you're going to buy this just for the looks and drive it around town, then you're probably a masochist, to be honest. I got onto the dirt road with it and I immediately felt comfortable is not the right word because, you know, you can't deny physics when you hit a, a bump and go over that. But it felt like the vehicle was so secure and confident there. I didn't want to go charging through the deepest puddles and get the biggest spray of mud. If there was a puddle and a, an easier way around it, I took the easier way, yes. I did so not for the sake of the vehicle, but the sake of two things. One, my comfort inside, and two, I didn't have to wash it as much. <laughs> yes. I have a very strong philosophy when I go off-road and you encounter those sort of obstacles where you're sort of sitting there and having a bit of a look and a think. If, if you don't have to, don't. Because yeah. quite 
And when you do, that's when you come unstuck. Yeah. And, and, and do you find then with all this technology and that, that it is really the serious person? And your point is to go further. It's not just a graded road. It's one that you are intending to not push the limit for your own testosterone's sake, but be in situations that few people would get to. Look, there, there's, there's two parts to that as well. One is that, yes, you do want to go further up the trail than most other people want to go or, you know, further down that, that track to see what's at the end of it or that, you know, perfect beach that you want to get to and you can only get there if you've got one of these. But the other part of it is when you're doing the normal sort of trails, the Wrangler Rubicon will do it so much easier with yeah. less strength in the vehicle than a lot of other four-wheel drives that will still get there, but they'll burp and fart and bounce, you know, to, to mm. try and get there. Whereas the Rubicon will simply just potter along and do what it does without any fuss. Yes, I, I certainly found that. It was immediately obvious to my mind or the feel of it. Once I was on a dirt road, you know, you still got bumps and, you know, you can't take a culvert at a million miles an hour without getting thrown around. But it just, with sensible driving, it was just far easier to do it. And then when I got to a distant location and there was only the sound of the wind in the trees and the birds chirping, it was a wonderful relaxation that I, I enjoyed I enjoyed very much. Now... They say, of course, that the Jeep has its heritage back to 1941 and the Second World War. I think in some ways it's not just a homage to that, that some of the technology, the steering and the suspension has its great capability, but it's, it's more than just a homage. In many ways, it still has that sort of similar sort of design to it. How are, are you in a position to think about the difference between what it was and what it is now? Oh, look, I, I think so. I, the first vehicle I ever drove was a World War II left-hand drive Jeep on the farm when I was 11 years old. Oh. It was a very simple beast. It's still on the farm. And, um, you know, it, it went anywhere you pointed it to go. That same philosophy still carries through. Obviously, technology has increased a lot. But I think in the case of the Rubicon, a lot of the technology is actually in the underneath the vehicle, the, the parts that count when you're off-road. Mm. Now, I would say the engine is probably the greatest and latest in terms of technology. You know, there's, there are better engines out there, but it does exactly what it needs to do. Mm. Mm. And the other thing about your experiences in the World War II Jeep and the current ones is that they don't look that much different, do they? No, there's a lot of similarity between the two. You could put the two side by side and you could actually see the familiar resemblance. <laughs> the DNA is obvious with the separate sort of stand-out, stick-out mudguards and so on along the way. The, the, the thing with the Rubicon is it's got all that look and it is it does scream look at me, but... Everything that's on that vehicle, yes, it is designed, you know, to look at me, but it has a purpose as well, and that's the difference. With the sway bar working, I found that going along a, a narrow country road, no line marking, certainly neither in the centre or certainly not on the edges, it wasn't uncomfortable. It wasn't uh, so sloppy that you might have thought when we use words like wallowing along, it, it actually did 
remarkably well. You wouldn't have wanted to go any faster. I wasn't going near its absolute limits, but you wouldn't want to go faster because there might be a slower car coming around a very you know, blind corner in the other direction. But it wasn't that bad. Look, it, it, I think everything's a relative scenario. When you, If you drive a Wrangler Rubicon compared to, say, a Land Rover Defender on road, the two are completely different. And mm. Daniel I got a cough. <coughs> Pardon me. No worries. But the Rubicon does have, but the Rubicon does have, you know, reasonably good on-road manners. You know, if there's a little bit of wind noise, there's a little bit of road noise. It's not exactly precise in its steering or its, you know, response to the throttle. But it's not designed to do that. You know, mm. It's like having a weightlifter and, and someone, you know, they're running 100 metres. You don't want a weightlifter trying to run 100 metres you know, to compete against Usain Bolt. Um, you know, it's, it's designed to do what it's meant to do. And, and, yeah, you know, it is a little bit different on the road, but it's certainly not bad. It's just not as good as some of the other SUVs. Lovely summation, Rob. Uh, it's great to get your expertise. Thank you very much for your – thank you very much for this opportunity. No worries, David. Talk to you later. Thank you. And that's Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au, uh, a guy who has had a long and extensive experience in going camping and finding locations and going on roads where you need specific requirements from your vehicle. This is not a place to take a Toyota Camry. You're listening to Overdrive. In the world of family SUVs, the Mazda CX-9 sits in an unusual spot. With levels of interior luxury and comfort that rivals many European SUVs, the CX-9 Azami is an all-wheel drive SUV that is designed for the urban environment and family transport. The Azami comes in a seven-seat configuration and the LE version comes with a mid-captain's chairs and six seats. Little things like the external mirrors dipping in reverse, wireless charging tray for smartphones, sumptuous Nappa leather seats, both heated and ventilated, with additional electronic lumbar support for the driver all make the interior comfortable. The large 10.25 inch central infotainment screen is controlled by a dial arrangement that is both convenient and inconvenient at the same time. Powered by a Skyactiv 2.5 litre turbocharged four-cylinder petrol engine, produces 170 kilowatts and 420 newton metres. This is mated to an all-wheel drive system driven through a six-speed automatic transmission. Driving the CX-9 around town is smooth, quiet and perfect on the school run. All up, the CX-9 Nazami is well worth a drive, priced at a little under $71,000 plus the usual costs. This is a motoring minute. I'm Rob Fraser. As noted in the news, Kia has just released the second generation of their Nero small SUV with hybrid and full electric vehicle variants. As well as an increase in size, comfort and safety features, it is the first Kia vehicle in Australia to have the Kia Connect application that can have considerable benefits for operating and managing the use of your vehicle, especially with fleets and family situations. The first generation Nero was released to the Australian market only a year ago, but it was a model that had been in other markets for four years. The first model was not well refined and did not have very modern styling, but was acceptable and an important step for Kia to start establishing their skills, particularly at the dealer level, to sell and service electrified vehicles. Last year they sold just 742 Neros, and in the first five months of this year they have sold 548 of the first model. This is not very many, but given the supply side constraints, and this can change one way or the other week by week, 
Kia is currently anticipating getting some 75 vehicles per month of the new model, which is less than this year's average monthly sales of the previous model. And as the model has sold very well at launch in Korea and other countries, this does not augur well for supply to meet potential demand in Australia in the short term. There are two specification levels, the S and the GT line. Now, they're very similar drivetrains from the previous model, but only a hybrid and full electric vehicle variant. There is currently no plug-in hybrid option, as there was in the first-generation vehicle. But Kia are keeping their options open. Unlike the Kia EV6 or the Hyundai Ioniq 5, which have a dual-motor option, the Nero is only available with one electric motor driving the front wheels. Even with only the one motor, the electric vehicle performance ratings are appreciably quicker than the hybrid model. The hybrid is more than just a mild assistance system with a combined output of 104 kilowatts and 265 newton meters of torque and capable of achieving 4 litres per 100 kilometres combined fuel consumption. That's pretty good. Getting towards Toyota standards, who have developed their hybrid technologies for over two decades. The Kia 1.6-litre four-cylinder engine is mated to a six-speed dual-clutch automatic transmission. The electric vehicle motor has an output of 150 kilowatts of power and 255 newton-metres of torque. All full electric models now come with the larger 65-kilowatt-hour battery and a single-charge rated driving range of 460 kilometres. The suspension has been especially tuned for coping with the range of Australian road conditions by independent tuning specialist Graham Gambold. The new model is bigger in all exterior dimensions except the height, which remains the same. It's still officially classified as a small SUV, but if it were just one centimetre wider, it would pass the dimensional tests to be classified in Australia as a medium SUV. The extra space has particularly improved the room for the second row of passengers. The base model S gets some 15 significant new features, mainly in the convenience and safety areas, while the top spec GT line has 25 more significant features, although some of those are specifically for the electric vehicle rather than the hybrid model. The GT line additions are across all the main areas of exterior, interior, comfort and safety. The Nero is the first of their models in Australia to get Kia Connect, a smartphone app that allows users to connect with their vehicle remotely. Not the first brand on the market with this sort of technology, but I think it is very practical for how we prepare a vehicle for a particular trip and how we monitor its use. Kia Connect is available as standard on both the hybrid and the electric vehicle top-line GT line trims, and offers features such as safety and security, remote vehicle controls, live services such as weather and traffic, artificial intelligence voice control, they say, vehicle status, monthly driving information, map and location features, send destination to your car, and scheduling charging and climate control in the EV model. The ability to access information such as driving statistics and to set charging times helps review the vehicle operation in the comfort of your home or convenience of the office. To be able to plan ahead by remotely warming the vehicle and demisting the windscreens, as well as entering a destination before you get into the car, 
remove some of the common frustrations when you jump into a car and want to start driving immediately. The system also has geo and time fencing. Now that will send alerts to the vehicle owner if a vehicle goes beyond its nominated area or its nominated times of operation. Very important for fleets or for parents with their young adult children driving the car. Kian also says they have given great attention to the voice actuation system, but we will have to see how good that is at a later date. Nero offers a choice of eight exterior colours, with options for a choice of contrasting C-pillar colours on the top-spec GT line. Now, the C-pillar and other panel highlights is, I sense with senior management from Kia Australia, very much a Korean design initiative that may not be taken up by many Australians. Nonetheless, there were some members of the public that said they liked it. But getting to the top-spec full-electric vehicle is not cheap. Starting with the hybrid base model S, before on-road costs, it is $44,380, going all the way up to the full electric GT line at $72,100. The additional cost of the GT line, it's about $5,650 for the hybrid and about $6,800 for the fully electric, plus any impact to on-road costs certainly adds many good features that improve the comfort and safety for the driver and passengers. But the extra $21,000 to $22,000 for the full electric option would need to be justified on running costs, and Kia have some additional ways to reduce a service cost of electric vehicles with a better battery cooling system. You would also be buying the electric vehicle with a community commitment to reducing pollution, and, as indicated by some recent research, electric vehicles can produce a calmer, quieter environment for the driver, which has a safety implication. With very limited supplies, Kia has a delicate balancing act between selling to private or fleet buyers. Clearly, a fleet discount reduces the profit to Kia and the dealers, but a fleet's bargaining position is very much in terms of its existing and potential long-term relationship with the manufacturer and the fleet volumes they will require. The Kia Nero is on sale now. This is Overdrive across Australia. Toyota's Prada has been a huge success in Australia over the years as both an adventure four-wheel drive and a family SUV. The latest Kakadu model comes with a host of luxury and comfort features, but it's starting to show its age a little. Toyota has kept it alive with upgrades along the way with improvements to the infotainment connectivity, safety across the range and cosmetic upgrades. Priced from a tad under $88,000 plus the usual costs, it comes with heated and ventilated front and rear seats, multi-terrain off-road systems, adaptive suspension and a moonroof. It's powered by the familiar 2.8 litre four-cylinder diesel engine with 150 kilowatts and 500 newton metres from as low as 1600 revs. Prado, especially in the upper spec models, is really used as a family transport with seven seats. That's not to say it isn't capable off-road as it is, unfortunately it's just not used much there. With all the production issues surrounding the 300 series Land Cruiser and COVID still ravaging supply chains, I can't see a new Prado coming anytime soon, even if it is needed. However, in the meantime, Toyota will continue to sell Prado in large numbers. This is a Motoring Minute, I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with the program. 
Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.